you know, I, I think it's about having no rules and not being bound to convention and oftentimes believing in the fact that the best, most appropriate solution is the simplest thing. And also kind of a thing that we do that I think most other landscape offices don't do is we kind of like to flirt and bump up against illegibility and like uh, sometimes make things that are a little bit blurry in like where our pan as designers begins and ends. It's a journey. And I think as an office, we're pretty open-minded to new things and different types of beauty. Recently, I had the honor of chatting with part of the amazingly talented team of landscape designers at Terramoto, which is a landscape design firm here in California that has been making waves in the industry since their inception in 2013. I've personally been a big fan of this firm for several years and have been enamored with their work ever since I was first introduced to it when I walked through a tiny Japanese-inspired cactus garden they designed for an art exhibit that was showcasing the work of one of my favorite California ceramicists, Stan Bitters. With offices in San Francisco and Los Angeles, Terramoto has been making super unique garden spaces by embracing the esoteric and the weird through an open-ended design process. This unique weirdness comes through not only in their designs, but also in their website design, their contemplative and reflective essays, and fun and interesting Instagram account, which documents their process, people, and unexpected adventures and evolutions that their projects take them on. The company's presence, the brand voice, the work, and the people are all consistent with one another. It's really just talented, thoughtful, humble, and intuitive designers getting together with nature to make cool outdoor spaces that balance the native ecology with inspiring designs that borrow from the worlds of art, industrial design, historical understanding and preservation, culture, and garden stylings and practices from all over the world. The secret sauce of Terramoto isn't found in any formula or academic dogma. Rather, it's really just having an ear for intuition, an eye for design, and a voice for meaningful dialogue and challenging questions. The design of our outdoor spaces can play a huge role on how we feel and how we heal. Beyond the human experience, designing more ecologically progressive environments by using more native and regionally appropriate plants can also help our planet heal. Native plants and smart ways of leveraging natural systems uses fewer resources and supports stronger, healthier overall environments. Today, we take a look at their unique, diverse backgrounds, peer into their design process, and discuss philosophies on botany in historical context. We also talk about test plot, which is an active botanical experiment in restoration ecology they have created and are spearheading with the goal of finding the most cost-effective ways of introducing self-sustaining native plantings back into an ecologically challenged park here in Los Angeles. We discuss the personal responsibility to the land, the importance of native plants and composting for a chemical-free landscape, how we can design better and more cost-effective urban community gardens, practical ways we can implement more focused and more ecologically efficient building codes, and their thoughts on the future of garden making. So please enjoy this conversation with David Godshall, Alan Peroy, 
Jenny Jones, and Story Wiggins of Terramoto. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. We have five of us here today, which is super exciting. We have David Godshall and Ellen Peroy, who are the principal owners of Terramoto. And Ellen, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yes. Okay. Good. He's got kind of a unique spelling, so I just want yeah, to make sure. I know. can go many directions with that spelling. Siri calls you Elaine whenever I'm calling you. (laughs) That is the proper pronunciation, but I don't know if we can just ad-lib on this podcast. Yes, of course. And we also have Jenny Jones, a landscape designer and partner at the LA office. Hi. And Story Wiggins, a landscape designer at the San Francisco office. Hello. Okay, so to get a quick overview of how the company started, um, David and Alan, you were you guys originally worked together at a firm in the San Francisco Bay Area called Surface, correct? Yep, Surface Design. And eventually you guys decided to start your own company together, and this was in 2013? Yes. David, I, I learned that you were actually moving down to the LA area right at the time that you guys were deciding to start the business, but Alan wasn't interested in moving, so you guys kind of launched this brand new business with a northern and southern california office right from the get-go it didn't make any sense but um (laughs) we were just like yeah let's just roll with it we started the business not like we didn't like make a business plan or we didn't do any of the things that they tell you to do when you start a business and Uh it's worked out uh knock on wood it made increasingly more sense that we're both in both places at once as as the firm kind of grew i would say Yeah, that's interesting. My business partner and I did the exact same thing, actually. He's based up in Sacramento, and I'm here in LA, so I'm up and down quite a bit. Yeah. Early days, Alan and I were going up and down the five like madmen. And then as the business has grown, the office is, I think, uh, in perfect spiritual alignment or whatever you, however you want to describe it. Sure. The offices kind of behave somewhat autonomously, which is lovely as well. Great. And Jenny, you joined the LA office in 2016 and are our partner there. Yep. I've been here, been around for a couple of years now, and it's been really fun to see David and Alan grow it all. And you, and Story. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And Story, you joined the San Francisco office in 2016 as well. Yes, I think so. Been here about four years. Yep. The math checks out. So for my own business, I commute frequently, as I said, from Northern and Southern California. And, you know, I've personally noticed that the climate, the culture, the tastes and design in general and horticulture can be quite different between the two. But I would imagine that each location has provided you guys with uh, unique challenges and opportunities to explore different design possibilities and uh, philosophies and ask questions and challenge the accepted norms and like isms of landscape design. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with all of that. Uh, the the two cities are in many ways uh, foils, I think, to one another. They're very different places. Yes. And each place, I feel, has its own strengths and weaknesses. But it's really lovely getting to practice in both places because there's no better way to get to know a place than to work there. I'm a big believer in or to do projects in a place. Um, and so, yeah, it's been lovely having offices in both places. Yeah. And in early days, it kind of brought us like notoriety. People were like, oh, you're in LA and SF. And 
secretly I was just like, it's just Dropbox and like phone calls. Uh, it's not, <laughs> not that sophisticated, but like people tend to think it's, uh, it's yeah. yeah, it's been interesting that way. So it's served us well. That's great. So over the past several years, you guys have kind of been all over the place online. Like you've garnered a lot of positive press, which I would say is due mainly to your unique perspective that you bring to the industry and the refined, playful weirdness you cultivate into the world. So, you know, it's all a team effort, of course, which is why I'm so excited to have so many of you on. So I'd love to start by getting a taste of your backgrounds. You know, what kinds of interests and perspectives do you bring to the team and kind of also what drew you to landscape design? Yeah, I don't know. I went to a school where you had to pick your major right out of high school and I chose landscape architecture just because I like to be outside. I didn't really know much about it, um, but it's a fairly broad profession. So you kind of can find your way. Um, and I took a job after school with like a big firm doing civic work and kind of got discouraged by the long-term project kind of thing, like the five-year run. And I went to grad school in Europe to uh, study industrial design. Hmm. I figured that was going to be like a faster, smaller scale thing that could turn around quicker. Mm. Um, and then I realized I actually missed the outdoor environment and kind of felt like the chair I'm using that as an example was like kind of ego based and I'm not really that, don't have that big of an ego. So I came back and I found a job at Surface where I met David. Um, and I, yeah, from, the, from then on, I've kind of been uh, pretty happy with that decision. Um, and I think the residential scale is kind of the perfect blend of industrial design and landscape where you kind of focus on these um, very intimate details, um, but also understand spatial relationships. Um, I'm from Southern California and did my undergrad at UC Santa Barbara in the history of art and architecture kind of opposite of Alan. I came to landscape architecture pretty late. I didn't even know what it was for a while. And it's incredible, Alan, that you like picked landscape architecture when you were like 18 years old. <laughs> um, and then I lived in Los Angeles and I worked at American Apparel in their art department for about three years. Uh, and it was my first like introduction to construction. So I like learned how to use drills and I didn't come from a household that construction happened in any regard. And so it was like very magical to me that you could like move walls and do things. Right. Uh, because I like used a drill and I was willing to work whatever, 16 hours a day. They like flew me to Europe and I like built stores and it was fun. It was a good job. Wow. But I knew that my trajectory was not long there and I gardened and honestly, my mom was like, you should think about landscape architecture school. And I, on kind of a whim, I applied uh, to Cal and then I got my master's at Cal and then I uh, went to service design and that's my origin story, Jenny Jones. I'm from Virginia, right outside of Washington, DC, and um, grew up just being really into science, uh, also art, but you know, it's, in school at the time, you were sort of encouraged to pick one or the other, and I headed more into the science direction. Didn't really like go back to art in my life until I went back to grad school. So I'm really glad to have ultimately found landscape architecture. I'm more like David, it took me a little while. So I studied um, environmental science and policy at University of Virginia, uh, went and taught middle school science through Teach for America. I was in West Oakland, so I kind of bounced back and forth between Virginia and California. Um, so I was in California a couple of years teaching science, and then I went back to UVA for grad school in landscape architecture. Um, 
kind of by accident also. I like applied to forestry school and I almost went and got a master's in education. I just knew I wanted to go back and get a master's in something. And I just like scatter shotted my applications and ended up back at UVA. I'm very glad I did. Uh, and then I, um, yeah, I worked at a firm up in Philly and then ended up out here in California uh, with that firm. It was Olin. And then I met David on the street and uh, a couple of years later, he hired me. Wow, that's great. On the street. We met on the main street. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay, story. What's, what's your story? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm from the East Coast as well. Um, and like David and Jenny, I took the circuitous path um, getting here. I, I studied historic preservation in undergrad and because I'm from these places where history is really important, um, Newport, Rhode Island and Beaufort, South Carolina, it's like steeped in history. And I felt like that was a cool way to have a practical job that, um, yeah, it was like, making in the environment interesting and beautiful and better but you know after studying that in school I kind of became disillusioned because it felt you, like you were working against nature in a way like you're trying to kind of arrest time um, and I'm glad that people do that with their lives but I just knew that it wasn't for me so I sort of like like, what can I do that's working more with time than against it? And um, found my way to landscape and came out to go to grad school at Cal as well. And then I worked a stint at another firm before coming to Terramoto, but this has been, yeah, my longest job as an architect, landscape architect. That's awesome, thank you. Um, my dad is a landscape designer and my sister is as well. So I grew up around plants and digging in the dirt and, you know, beyond that, I would spend hours outside exploring the wooded areas and creeks um, near our house and get lost in the cornfields, ride my bike around the country blocks. You know, we lived out kind of in the boonies. So where'd you grow up? Indiana. Oh, cool. Central northern mm -hmm. kind of area. And I love to camp. So I love nature. And I really resonate with the passion that you guys have in both nature and design and then uh, the philosophy of it all. So I want to talk about process. Um, what's your approach to design? Is there, is there an overall ethos or guiding principle you guys follow? Or is it more kind of nebulous, fluid, or constantly evolving practice? You know, it's complicated, um, uh, I guess in short. Uh, we, we're skeptical of dogma while also trying to be like ethical and principled. So it's like, there's a, there's a lot going on in that I think the moment I feel like we believe in a thing, we also wanna throw that thing out the window and, and question it and call into belief like any sort of like dogmatic approach uh, to design. But I guess in general, you could say uh, we started the office so that we could create uh, gardens and landscapes that were expressions of cultures and allowed us to cultures culture uh, and allowed us to like explore ideas. That being said, the ideas that we explore or the concepts we explore from project to project vary quite widely, uh, and also our project sites vary quite widely. 
so in the early days, Alan, Alan and I were kind of like, we need to know what the concept is when we start the project. We got to, what's our concept? And we realized that sometimes it's not so black and white and it's not so linear in that sometimes you also have to just start. I admit sometimes when we do begin a thing, we like, oh, I think we understand uh, what it is that we're after conceptually speaking. And then sometimes you don't and it hits you in the middle or it hits you at the end. So I feel like we've increasingly given ourselves more latitude to just like start working on a project and figuring like out what the concept or idea that we're exploring is like as we kind of go along. But we do also have some like principles I almost wanna say in that like we always try to do right by the site uh, we always need to do right by our client. Um, we try to remain open to different and evolving perceptions of beauty. Uh, and with all of that, and with the fact that I think everyone on the team is interested in not just one type of garden. I think we like Japanese gardens and French gardens and Italian gardens and native gardens and vacant lots and all these different sorts of stimuli or these Points, points of inspiration for us have allowed us to create a body of work that is stylistically like and intentionally quite diverse and weird in that a lot, most landscape architecture offices, you can like, they have a style or it's, it's like a legible distinct kind of a thing. And I think we're, we're, I think intentionally harder to pin down. And I think we're harder to pin down because of all those things I kind of just mentioned is that uh, it's like a, it's a journey and, and we're like, I think as an office, we're pretty open-minded mm -hmm. to new things and different types of beauty. Yeah, you know, in in studying your work and, and your writings, uh, one of the things that stood out to me is, is your understanding and emphasis of landscape design history and its cultural context. And then you kind of explore how and in what ways you know, parts of those historical elements could could be still be relevant to today. Totally. Yeah. And then the magic kind of happens in experimenting with how to combine these these seemingly disparate elements together in such a way that that creates this pleasing sense of um, what would you call like a dissonant harmony almost, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, sure. There's like a sense of both subtle tension and resolution at the same time and the way you guys combine materials mm -hmm. structural elements placement color etc and as you were saying i think i think it's that unexpected pairing of ideas presented in a new way that kind of evokes those feelings of excitement and inspiration and freshness that everybody's so attracted to in your work thank you of course and you know there's another part to it having physically experienced several of your designs in person here in LA, um, I've noticed that your spaces all seem to be very recognizably Terramoto, even when the design approaches are super different. And I get that many of them share similar plant, uh, structural material palettes, which I guess inherently creates a recognizable physical look or style. But beyond that, visual aspect there's also like this terremoto feel that's less definable um and i think you were speaking to that earlier like there's somehow also a spiritual component to the brand that's consistent no matter how different the spaces are like it could be a, a highly structured you know very intentional contemplative zen garden or a more free-flowing less formal 
experimental kind of space, but regardless, that feeling is still there. So is, is that something you strive for? Like, is there a design language you all adhere to, or does it kind of happen organically as a result of the team and the vision and the, the process you go through? Uh, thank you. That was, that was like incredibly complimentary. So thank you for that. I like to think that when you go to a Terramoto space, it's buzzing. I don't know. <laughs> um, that's, that's cool. That's like the ultimate compliment. You know, I, I think it's about having no rules and not being bound to convention and oftentimes believing in the fact that the best, most appropriate solution is the simplest thing. Uh, and also kind of a thing that we do that I think most other landscape offices don't do is we kind of like to, to flirt and bump up against illegibility and like uh, sometimes make things that are a little bit blurry. Uh, in like where our where our hand as designers like begins and ends. This guy that I'm friends with, we did his garden and he said, this is the biggest compliment. He said his wife and he drive around, they like live in Mount Washington, which is kind of like this ramshackle, like weird part of town, uh, which is really incredible. There's a weird building vernacular there. And they say that sometimes they'll see like a weird fence and they'll be like, is that a terremoto? <laughs> Or is that just a weird guy who just built this fence in a weird way? I, was <laughs> like, I like that. Uh, so I don't, uh, I'm not like trying to dance around it. And I, I, I don't think you can necessarily, necessarily put it cleanly into language, uh, how we do what we do. But mm. yeah, also believing in process uh, and like in the, in the nuance and trusting like an intuition, I think is like a thing that kind of is a recurring theme in a lot of our projects, mm -hmm. regardless of how they look stylistically, so to speak. Yeah, well so much of the work of a designer is following intuition and picking up energies of, you know, space, color, lighting, flow, all that stuff. You know, you, you have to be able to connect to the soul of the space. You know, for instance, when you, when it comes to architecture, like you can walk into a giant glass and steel building that has you know, a very minimalist approach where everything is sleek and smooth and it seems like a great place for androids to work. And while it may be aesthetically beautiful as a study in perfect geometry or whatever, you may not feel a thing when you go inside. But on the other hand, when you walk into a building that's focused on human design and human experience from the, from the very beginning, um, you know, may, maybe it has a giant skylight and a large water feature or a big courtyard with real plants and tall trees in it. Um, and there's lots of natural materials like wood and rough stone that you can touch and connect with and feel the aliveness of the space. You know, you feel it kind of reflected inside of you. You feel this like ancestral familiarity. And there's this kind of nonverbal conversation you have with the space. So when you assess a site, is there an intention to try and identify both the soul of the space and the client? Well, the, the answer that I prepared for another question, I think speaks to this question, which is I think specifically of our Whitley Heights project, which I can't quite put into words how it worked out, but sometimes projects just work out where the vibe of the client is right and they're gonna let you do something weird. <laughs> And you might not start the project even knowing like how weird it's going to get. Sure. But it, I think David and I did sense something with that client and with that space. And 
what ended up happening was something none of us expected in the first place, which is we pulled this patio out into the middle of the garden and surrounded it with a crazy tangle of plants that you never find together in nature. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a garden that is um, like hard to get to and it's hard to maintain and the clients love it. They got married in that garden, uh, you know, a couple of years after we finished it. Wow. So it, and, and one of the, um, one of the guys in the, in the marriage, he, you know, retired and now he spends his time in the garden all the time and he has like become a gardener. So I can't quite put into words, like when we started that project, if we felt that that was going to happen, I don't think we did, but we clearly felt something and it all worked out in the end. Not every project goes that way, right? That's like the dream project where the client, you are all aligned with the client. Mm -hmm. They're amazing. They end up wanting to become gardeners. They get married in the garden. That's like the dream scenario. Um, so sometimes it works out really nicely like that, but um, not every time. <laughs> the best client is the hands-off client in a way, I think. Let's us do our thing. And where they trust you. Yeah. And that's, a, I mean, I always think that's why you hired us to, is to give you our take on a garden um, and not you inserting your kind of, I don't know, values into the garden or whatever of uh, the design. Mm -hmm. I often think that clients try to overhelp in a way. I agree. I think when people know what they want, it's the least interesting thing. We like clients who don't know what they want in a way. But I think something that's that is fun but can also be challenging is when clients um, are really in touch with the site in a very specific way. Like, um, you know, some people buy a property and then they just like are taking it all in the patterns of the sun and the wind and the trees, like, you know, down to like noticing when a tree has dropped a branch and being like oh no is the tree okay and sometimes that can be overwhelming in terms of just like the amount of information but I think I'm trying to get better at listening to that because um that's kind of a gift like when a client does have the ability to listen to a site and and observe it all the time because we don't get to obviously we're not there all the time in that way so that's something I'm trying to get better at I see. So on, on like more of a, more of an internal space for you guys, not that's not necessarily customer facing because customers don't really, you know, sometimes they don't really care about this stuff, but do you guys follow any sort of like more, I guess, spiritual kind of direction in the way you plan spaces out, like of feng shui, you know, air, water, you know, the, the five elements you try include those in your design or do you, you know, do you insert more concept focus elements like of, from biophilic design, which is more for the architectural side of things, but does any of that kind of stuff play into your personal processes at all? Not overtly, I would say. I, I would say we, we all have a lot of different influences in us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why David, David and Alan have done a really good job of collecting really intuitive designers, people mm -hmm. who, for whom achieving a kind of balance in a garden is not, it's not dictated by adhering to a certain, you know, order yeah. or practice. It's 
dictated by a feeling that you can't really describe. So I don't know. I think a lot of our gardens do achieve a balance of like fire and water and air and, um, or, you know, feng shui. We don't like lay out these things and try to stick to them strictly, but I do think a lot of those kinds of things per do permeate our work. Yeah. Yeah. I, exactly. I've noticed it in your work. So I was wondering if it was like a conscious thing or more of, of just an intuitive thing. I think it's more intuitive. I mean, I think a lot of it comes from the client's requests. You know, we're not like okay. forcing a fire pit on them, but usually they come and they want a fire element. And right. it's more about where we place that element and how we place that element um, mm -hmm. in the landscape is kind of where, where we um, are able to achieve the unique aspects of our gardens, I think. Cool. I, I have a quote here from one of your essays. I believe it came from your website, but um, uh -oh. it's uh, <laughs> no, it's just a setup for a question. Um, as landscape designers, we must acknowledge there is no tabula rasa. Maybe God made the world in six days, but we have 10 billion years of antics to accommodate. By the time we get to a site, it's already a thing. And the very nature of a quote landscape is situated in geography, culture, weather, etc. There is no blank canvas, so let's work with the existing base coat. And there's a term you guys have coined in relation to this, I think you've coined it, I don't know, uh, called horticultural semiotics. And I find it such a fascinating concept uh, to think about. I've, I've read an article about it. So can you give us a brief definition of what that is? Uh, I have to do this because this is my harebrained theory <laughs> i don't know exactly how it came about other than when i moved back to la i was like looking at the window and looking at things a lot and i was just like trying to make sense of things uh and it was we had started terramoto somewhat recently and uh, a lot of my favorite practitioners kind of also dabble in like theory and i was ruminating on these ideas as how could you explain how los angeles looks if somebody had never been here before and then they said but why does this why does the city look the way it does as it relates to Baltimore? Why is there out my window there a, a palm tree that's native to 400 miles south uh, in Mexico? And in front of that, there's a protocarpus hedge that's native to China. Oh, actually, I don't know where, I think protocarpus is native to somewhere in Asia. Um, and so then I, basically I realized that through having a basic botanical identification capabilities, as well as an understanding of history of where you live, that I was able to kind of create like this lens through which you can drive around and make sense of the horticultural panorama of Los Angeles mm -hmm. through kind of using uh, these layers. And essentially the layers are native, LA as oasis, post-war and invasive and or feral. And with those four categories, they're kind of meta categories, uh, but you can kind of drive around Southern California and make sense of why our city looks the way it does in terms of botanical manifestation. And it's really kind of fascinating and because all these things are tied up with botanical trends and the way the city was developed and the way immigrants moved and the way when people come from another place that they bring their own garden making traditions with them. So yeah, it's just kind of interesting lens through which one can view the world. Mm. But that being said, I've kind of figured it out for Southern California. I still like I don't know about the history of San Francisco enough. I've tried, I struggle in the Bay Area because also agriculture is, I feel like, closer. It's like 25 minutes outside of San Francisco and you're in largely a much more agricultural, rural environment. Yeah. So basically those categories, depending on where you live geographically, would could radically alter. And it would take, I think, a greater understanding of 
the city to like be able to arrive at those conclusions. So it's my my weird little theory that uh, keeps me preoccupied when I drive around on the freeway, staring out the window. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of looking at a slice of rock, yeah. like the strata of the rock. You can see the history that happened. But in, in this case, it's like the history of plants. You know, why is that plant here? When did it come here? And, and all that stuff. And it's re- it is reflective of people moving around and trade and wars and all that stuff. So um, somewhat related to that, you guys also have an experimental project you're working on called Test Plot. And I know there's a lot to this and it probably warrants an entire show into itself, but can you give us the Cliff Notes version of what it is and what you're trying to achieve with that? Okay, Cliff Notes, I'll, I'll, give, it, I'll give it a try. Um, <laughs> we, uh, our office is in Echo Park. David and I both live in Echo Park. Uh, LA office. LA office, yeah. yeah. And we're right near Elysian Park, which is where Do- Dodger Stadium is. We use that park. Uh-huh. Um, we all noticed that uh, in the drought that happened a couple years ago, a lot of the trees in that park were dying. It was getting a lot of press. Um, we started inserting ourselves into the Citizens Committee to Save Elysian Park meetings, trying to figure out what's going on with the park. Is there anything we can do to help? And after a couple years of that and realizing that there's so many layers of bureaucracy, it's very difficult to get things done in a public space like that. Mm-hmm. We thought just what can we do super simple to just get some more native plants established in the park. And we basically got permission from Rec and Parks to install a temporary garden. Um, it was the only way they would let us do it. And we just sort of approached it from the point of view of what is the minimum amount of work that we could do to get some native plants established. Like we're not gonna propose putting in a new irrigation system. The cheapest and easiest way we could do it. And it's basically by having volunteer labor. So we um, reached out to as many experts as we could, ecologists, native plant growers, restoration people, trying to figure out what is the approach we should take because we had to deal with a pretty heavy uh, invasive seed bank that was already in the soil. So we actually had to like water it to flush those plants out first before Mm. we could put in our native plants. So it was cool. We got into a little bit of restoration ecology and now we installed it about a year ago. Um, We just did a second round of installs because we had some gopher issues that we're trying to figure out. And now it's basically self-sustaining. We've got a whole bunch of volunteers, just people who walk by, people who enjoy the park or who come across our website or our Instagram and they reach out and they say they want to help. And it's really great. So it's basically become this um, community experiment in restoration ecology and it's ongoing as we speak when i'm done here i'm going to email the volunteer who's going to water uh this weekend that's awesome so um where can people volunteer for it where do they go email me at jenny at terramoto.la i'm basically just coordinating all the volunteers at some point. i see uh, at this point da- at some point david we need to, well we need to figure out a more like sophisticated system <laughs> but um yeah right now it's just me managing the volunteers okay and they and there's also we have a we have a website it's testplot.info okay and the the volunteers they they actually help you plant and pull weeds and water and all that stuff Yep. Okay. Are you guys ever there? And people have with them. We're there a lot. Okay. We're there a lot. I mean, COVID has been tricky, right? Yeah. So pre-COVID, we would have these like 
big events and lots of people would come out and we would be there and we'd be, there'd be a lot of like sense of community. We're all talking about native plants. That hasn't really been happening the last mm. year. Um, but what's nice is that the volunteers have all told us that they are very grateful to have test plot as something that they're a part of. It's a way to get out of their apartments and out into, you know, hands in the dirt when they might not have their own garden. Um, so I think actually during COVID, it's been a really big blessing for a lot of our volunteers. That's great. So speaking to gardening, you know, it's a bit of a loaded word. Some people are filled with joy when they hear it. Uh, for other people, it's completely overwhelming and think it's, you know, too much work and to create and maintain. And, you know, other people think they're like Jack the Ripper when it comes to plants. So how do you frame the conversation with your clients when it comes to explaining landscapes? Because, you know, they're living, breathing, life-giving ecosystems that do require attention on some level. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I wish that more of our clients were up to get their hands dirty, you know, but the truth is like, a lot of our clients are really important, <laughs> busy people, you know, and maybe it, it's like not part of their um, their aspiration. Yeah, or what they think they have time for, you know, would be worth their time, which is, you know, maybe too bad, but I think we're trying to get better about educating people about the maintenance aspect of design because it's really essential. You know, it's like we come in and insert this thing, but then it's really like that's just the very beginning of the life of the garden. And um, the funnest thing for us is to go back in a year and see where it's gotten to. So. I mean, honestly, like a lot of it is labor that is being done by other people. And that's a whole other conversation that I think we're hoping to kind of bring to the fore is like gardeners and maintenance people in the landscape are really important. I was going to say essential is maybe not part of the essential worker category, but they're, it, that work is so like skilled and important that, you know, it's not just a mow and blow. It's like these people have a lot of wisdom and the work is really hard. <laughs> so just trying to bring that to people's attention so that they're aware of that. And it's part of the conversation. Yeah. Um, I think it's an area of responsibility that's often overlooked by, you know, those of us that live in urban areas and suburban areas is that our yards and our land by default become these little vital oases of biology in what's otherwise a, a vastly non-porous, non-organic, non-natural area. And, you know, all this wildlife that keeps our planet running, like butterflies, bees, insects, worms, birds, squirrels, chipmunks, what have you, they all rely heavily on people's yards for sustenance and places to live and shelter from the elements, different dangers. And I'm not sure a lot of homeowners really think about that, especially when it comes to having their landscapes designed professionally. So um, how do you balance kind of refined aesthetics or the aesthetics that a client may want with the more holistic responsibility to the ecosystem when you design? I mean, I think by the plants we plant anyways, we're doing that. Like we plant a lot of natives and, and mm -hmm. they instinctively bring uh, butterflies and bees and whatnot. I mean, the worst 
client is the one who doesn't like bees kind of <laughs> and then yeah. you know um because uh-huh. all pl- most plants attract bees at a certain point in their life um mm-hmm. so yeah i don't know i think just as a company we tend to plant plants that attract uh insects and wildlife there's like a i would just say there's like kind of a an ecological subtext to like all of the projects we do and mm-hmm. on some projects we really push the ecological aspect and we've done projects that are truly wholly native and then on some of the projects we don't we can it, it kind of is a little bit lower but even if that ecolog- ecological like uh crusade for lack of a better word mm-hmm. uh it, we amplify it and then kind of turn it down on the project depending on the homeowner and the context and where it is i feel like yeah uh, but it's kind of because it's a subtext to all the all the way we work like mm-hmm. at, at every level uh it's just part of our practice um and how we operate and i do think you're right i feel like in san francisco we've built up tons of uh residential gardens and in la it's the same and i like to think of a oh shoot i'm gonna am i gonna forget the term uh patchwork e- ecology uh like we we've probably built somewhere between 20 and 30 gardens in like the neighborhoods of silver lake and echo park in los angeles at this point and there's this ecological framework that's called patchwork ecology which is kind of like which states that uh fauna uh and insects can make their way through a city as long as there's these islands or reservoirs of Mm -hmm. ecology that they can kind of drift between and so it's a nice way to like to frame uh part of the reason why we part of the motivation to do residential gardens in the cities that we live is that by doing gardening by making gardens the way we do we're creating these like islands of ecology uh which if you take them apart one by one don't add up to much but over the course of our careers which i hope are long and wonderful that we can like actually like meaningfully improve the environmental health of this the cities in which our office practices that's beautiful are there certain plants people should try to include in their landscapes whenever possible white sage kind of... white sage i don't know uh why what does that do oh uh it's just like a good it's a, a plant that operates really nicely on a ecological level it's a it's a a beacon for bees and butterflies Uh, and it's also like spiritually speaking like a really important plant it's a good plant to touch and you can put the leaves of it in your water and it's supposedly uh native uh native americans use it on for a a wide range of purposes um so it's like a really Really? great plant i don't know but a story or alan or jenny might have another plant that well i just yeah i mean that that's a salvia apiana i think any salvia is a great plant you know all salvias are supported by our office um so Uh, not the one that makes you trip though alan not that one (laughs) oak trees i try to i try to sneak in baby Uh, my new thing is i try to sneak in baby oak trees on projects and sometimes like don't even point it out on the planting plan because they they're small and they take so long to grow you can kind of tuck them in the back of the garden and then they'll, you know, in 50 years, they'll come into their glory. Your client's going to be long gone, but the next, the next landowner is going to get to enjoy it. I'm all about like sneaking in trees wherever we can. <laughs> yeah. And is that just because, you know, of the shade and, and 
and what it does for the landscape or is there something more specific? All that like urban heat island effect, um, you know, carbon sequestration, like the, the level to which trees sequester carbon is huge compared to smaller plants. But also the legacy of the Quercus agrifolia is in jeopardy because of the shot hole borer. And there's a big debate in the native plant world or in the tree world, you know, plant them or don't plant them because they do harbor this pest. Um, but I'm landing on, no, we should keep planting them um, because it would be sad if we stopped planting them just to roll over in the face of this pest. So I think it's like we're, and up in the north, you guys have, what's the disease that you guys have with, on the oaks? It's the- Sudden oak. Sudden oak death. Sudden oak death. Mm -hmm. Do you, what's, what's happening there? Do they, is, are there people saying don't plant oaks because of sudden oak death or? I don't think so. I think it's a okay. it's a soil-borne disease, as, mm. as I understand it. So I think maybe you're, okay. yeah, there's some rules about that. But we haven't really experienced that. I mean, we're we still planting oaks all the yeah, time. Yeah. Oaks all day. Okay, good, good. But there are these there are these threats to the oaks, which really are like such an important part of the horticultural legacy of California. So that's another reason to just get them in the ground. Yeah, there's a there's a beetle sweeping through the Midwest area um, and it's decimated so many trees out there. My dad lost like seven trees on his property. So yeah, it's uh, people are scrambling to replant and and figure out how to mitigate the, the beetle problem. So what about people with just a balcony or even a window planter? Can those make a difference in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, I mean, any any green you can get around you is going to help and be great. You know, I think there's a reason why indoor plants are just booming right now because people are at home and want some peace of mind. And, and I think it really, yeah, I mean, it's been proven to do that. So, but I, I'm not sure about ecologically the impact of balcony gardens. I don't know. Can't hurt. Okay. Yeah, I just didn't know if there was like a power plant that people should like plant mm. or if it's <laughs> it's all part of a bigger system. So, you know, people are at home right now, of course, because of the pandemic. And I think one of the silver linings of that is that more and more people are beginning to connect with nature again. The food shortages in the grocery stores, uh, the focus on the importance of our personal health have really woken people up to things we've taken for granted. And a lot of people are planting edible gardens, which, you know, there's so much, so much so that there's like a national seed shortage or there was, I don't know if there still is, but you know, it reminds me of uh, the victory gardens from world war one and two. I'll give a brief overview here from my notes on that. Cause I don't know if all the listeners know exactly what those are, but I mentioned it because it kind of sets the stage for talking about nature and human health that I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on. So in World War I and II, there were severe food shortages in the U.S., and making up that shortage fell largely on the citizens themselves. So the idea of personal gardens called victory gardens were promoted, mostly by word of mouth, but also with the help of the government. And everything would be primarily edible in these gardens. So people were encouraged to plant them on all idle land that was not already being used for agriculture, including school and company grounds, parks, backyards, any available vacant lots. Um, the government, 
the government provided lots of free pamphlets on how, when, and where to plant their seeds, along with suggestions on the best crops and how to prevent disease and insect infestations. They also provided flyers on canning and drying food uh, so people could preserve any surpluses, which is great. And the kicker is by 1944, about 20 million Victory Gardens were producing 8 million tons of food, which is equivalent to, at the time, it was equivalent to more than 40% of all the fresh fruits and vegetables consumed in the U.S. That is a staggering number. 40% of all the fruits and vegetables consumed were grown in people's yards. So, you know, the whole movement was amazingly successful in boosting morale, expressing patriotism, safeguarding against food shortages on the home front, giving people a sense of purpose and hope. And it also had a huge impact on improving the overall mental and physical health of the nation to a point higher than before the wars. And I would say uh, that's due to eating organic whole foods, getting exercise by working and tending the land and getting fresh air and sunshine. So now we fast forward to today and the majority of us don't have any meaningful connection to our food or the land for that matter. And in the middle of this worldwide panic, in contrast to World War I and II, our government isn't telling us how to take action to naturally boost our immune systems by eating healthy foods, taking vitamin supplements, getting sunshine and fresh air, getting some of the form of exercise each day and spending quality time in nature together. So I think people in professions like yours have a lot of power in helping humanity return to a healthier balance, like especially in these times. In Japan, as I'm sure you're aware, there's a practice called Shinrin-yoku, which means forest bathing. It's not exercising, hiking, or jogging in the woods. It's simply being in nature and you know, connecting with it through our senses of sight, hearing, taste, smell, touch. And it's about setting aside time to be intentionally calm, to reflect and to notice yourself in the cycles and elements of nature. And it's been shown to lower cortisol, lower stress, improve mood and feelings of equanimity and increase white blood cell counts. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on the importance of having opportunities to connect with nature in meaningful ways and how its effect on human wellness plays into your work. I mean, I don't know, Glenn, you just said it really eloquently. Uh, I feel like a lot of the things you're talking about, we would love, we aspire to, we would love to convince all of our clients to, you know, plant permaculture orchards and grow their own food and do it the right way, you know, not with chemicals and be the ones out there tending the gardens themselves. And we, you know, we have some clients that start to move in that direction, but not all of them. Uh, so I don't know. We, I, I don't think we've like achieved that sort of like uh, enlightenment in the garden yet um, in terms of doing all of those things. We do have some gardens that have, a lot of our gardens have edibles in them. A lot of our gardens have a lot of native plants in them. Um, but I think it's something we're always striving for. I don't know. Alan, David, what do you guys think? Uh, we live in, we live in this moment where like a lot of the institutions on which our society like previously relied and thought were good are being shown whether from COVID or whatever to be corrupt and obsolete. And that's like a lot of things are kind of crashing down right now. 
And I think we're nearing the same thing uh, as it relates to garden making in like the vast, like suburban single family sense of the word in that I think as a civilization, we're starting to understand that the way we've been making our home gardens, basically from the post-war to the present, which is a grass lawn and foundation shrubbery or whatever, is no longer relevant and is selfish and is wrong. And so I think there's like this greater understanding that that's happening. And I'd like to think that the work that we do is kind of showcasing the future. But what's confusing to like the not botanically sophisticated person, uh, which is fine, is that uh, the solution used to be, the way you would garden used to be one thing. It was grass and some shrubs or whatever. But now that that's no longer the case, uh, what's next is very like vast and can be perplexing and abstract and confusing. But all that being said, I think that the work that we do at the residential level, at least I would like to think, can show people what ecologically forward-thinking gardens can look like and that they can also be beautiful. Our intern, Danny Von Lehe, she has this little bungalow in Silver Lake and I went to her house with my son because they have chickens and he wanted to see their chickens. And it was like the, this perfect garden that like, kind of showed how simple a thing could be in that it was mostly natives. There was a little redwood deck. There was, the compost was present, the chickens were present, and there, were, there was a, a little fire pit. And it was just like this beautiful, simple garden that I just thought was like a perfect example of how straightforward and easy it can actually be to make a garden that's still beautiful to be in, but that's also good for the local insects and the birds. And also you're producing fruit in it, and they were growing edibles. And it was just like an a incredible place. To piggyback off that, David, what I would love is if Terramoto's gardens could inspire people to actually do it themselves. And that's what I think is like, would be fun for people to know is in like a la Danny's garden. She did that with her boyfriend for very little money. They've just been doing it over time. They literally just put plants in the ground and then they take care of them and they water them and they, you know, help them along the way. So it's just all about time. You don't have to have a lot of money to have a wonderful garden. It's about the time that you put into it. Yes, we work on these big projects where we come in and we do a big renovation and that's really special that we get to do that. But you don't have to ha you don't have to hire a designer to do that. You don't have to have a lot of money to do it. So hopefully that's what people could take away from our work. Um, and that's one thing I like about our work because our work isn't always so refined and like, you know, it's not like we're not a luxury design office. So I do hope that people can realize Speak that- Speak for yourself, Jenny. <laughs> I hope that people realize that they can do it themselves. You don't need, I mean, I don't mean to take away business for, you know- No, 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 yeah. you, But you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, there's something much greater at stake here. Like that we, with like the ecological decline and all these things happening that like now is, now is the time. Um, so yeah, uh, we, in the most idealistic sense of the word, if our like portfolio can be to encourage people to be like, oh, I never thought of that plant as beautiful. And now there's, you know, there's rights, I don't know, re reframing, like um, almost sometimes the native plant community can seem a little bit like weird and grumpy, but like if we, if we can simply showcase gardens that are just like really beautiful and ecologically progressive simultaneously then that's like a win-win that's like that would be the dream yeah i think it's also therapeutic you know what you know to take care of plants you know you're taking care of something that is taking care of you and taking care of a bunch of other stuff 
And so I think people just get hung up on worrying about killing plants, which is fine. You know, it's a, it's a learning process. A plant will, you can grow another one, you know, and you learn through the process. So yeah, I think people, people can do it themselves. They can tend their own land. It, it does take time, but it's like a, it's almost like a meditative practice, even though you're, you're actively pulling weeds and trimming stuff and bagging up stuff. So um, what are your views on pesticides and chemical soil enrichment? Are there natural ways to promote healthier landscapes without having to use those products? Like, are there things people can do to get rid of bugs or like make their soil richer um, in easy ways that, you know, you're not putting down a product full of chemicals? Bugs are good, Glenn. We don't want to get rid of bugs. <laughs> but sometimes you can have other bugs eat the bugs that are hurting your plant. That's fun. Ladybugs. Right, like ladybugs yeah. eat those little white things. What are they Aphids, called? Aphids. Aphids, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't think, yeah, we're not really about that life using chemical fertilizer, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's what's also, we are talking a lot about native plants, but I think that's something that's really cool about native plants is like they are um, made to exist in, these, in the landscape that they're in. And of course that's changing. So like we have to be flexible with that, like starting to push with climate change, starting to like push those zones a little bit differently, but they're made to live here so you don't have to go bend over backwards you don't have to like feed them crazy fertilizer for them to to want to do well like they're gonna they're gonna do well um without that and then you know compost i think is probably mm -hmm. the best thing but i think maybe jenny and david might know more about that we try to i think in general art oh go ahead no jenny. you go ahead alan I was just talking about the maintenance of our gardens are pretty low maintenance. Um, you know, like you have to cut back the grasses, at least in NorCal, like you have to cut back grasses once a year and um, deadhead certain perennials. But like really for the most part, the way we plant our gardens, they take care of themselves in a way. There's like really monthly maintenance of, you know, like once a month you, you need to maintain them um, or like touch them up. Basically, you don't need to do a lot of, you don't have to have a lot of effort to keep our gardens looking good. And I think that's also like a question of aesthetics, right? Like we don't want our gardens to look perfect and pared down to a T. Like I think mm -hmm. what I mean, I'm speaking for the group, but like, I think what we all find interesting about gardens is the weird ways that plants interact with each other and um, the forms that trees will take, you know, you don't have to like impose your vision on them. It's really about like mm -hmm. seeing, seeing what happens there. Yeah, a lot of plants have synergistic relationships with one another, so they kind of take care of themselves and you don't have to do much. Um, that kind of stuff really intrigues me. Um, so switching gears a little, I'd like to talk about urban planning and communal spaces. So I think, unfortunately, we've designed our cities and civic communal spaces in probably some of the worst ways imaginable as far as supporting human health and incorporating nature. But 
one of my favorite places to visit here in LA is Platform Park, which is a public park area here in LA in Culver City uh, designed by you guys. It's situated, uh, for those that don't know, it's situated directly under an elevated metro station right at the entrance to a really well-designed outdoor mall. The mall itself incorporates a lot of natural plants, natural materials, and textures, biomimicry, biophilic design concepts into its architecture. It's a great space. I love being in it. Um, when the mall was built, or maybe it was after, I'm not sure, you guys were hired to design the park portion. And, you know, you designed areas of lawn for games and picnics. There are areas with heavy timber benches to sit, along with multi-level benches for kids to climb on. Uh, there's meandering decomposed granite paths, lots of large, interesting rocks and plants. And one of the things I really love is there's a low wooden fence surrounding the property there. That's that to me, it's there more to visually define the space, but appear welcoming from both sides rather than imposing and distracting like a, a taller fence would be. Um, but maybe the most impactful part for me is in a place surrounded by so much concrete. I mean, it's crazy in that little pocket there. Uh, there's almost none inside the park. You know, the pathways blend softly into the planting beds and there's no harsh man-made curbs that you're so used to seeing in urban design. Um, and when I first visited, I thought, how the hell did they convince the city or the property owner to go along with this design? Because it's so non-linear and isn't forcing me to walk through it in a specific direction. It's like freeform and natural, makes me want to explore, um, which is definitely not a feeling I typically, typically get from public parks. So um, I think it's a really important case study on how we can start to rethink about how we design nature back into our cities. So was that kind of part of the vision going into that project or did it kind of develop out of something else? The thing about this park is uh, it's actually not a public park, but it behaves like one. And that's part of what kind of makes it like a fascinating place. The land underneath it is owned by the Metropolitan Transit Authority, the MTA, basically owns all the land underneath the tracks. Right. Our clients, the developers who uh, owned the mall next door, are forward-thinking cool guys who realized that they had this huge space immediately adjacent to their mall. Uh, and if they were willing to invest a bunch of their own money on land that they didn't own, if they were willing to take that leap, that they could then kind of create the, ci the civic space for like uh, all, there's all this, all these new buildings like just went up. So they're basically created the heart of like the community in that area. And by virtue of proximity to their mall, their mall would ultimately benefit. I'm perfectly at ease with parks, some, especially in a city like Los Angeles or San Francisco, where there's like a woeful dearth of meaningful green and public spaces. Yeah. I'm perfectly fine if the mall gets more successful because of this park in that regard. And I actually think accepting like generators of money into park areas, like is something that people should be more open-minded about. So anyways, we were able to build it and it was a wonderful project because it goes to show that the budget was pretty small. They wanted it done fast. The approvals process, because it wasn't technically public land, we had to navigate some stuff with the MTA and like make sure that it was ADA accessible and things like that. And there was like certain night lighting requirements for safety that we had to satisfy. 
but we didn't have to go through a public ap approvals process, which though important isn't really in our constitution, uh, is less in our constitution as an office because I tend to believe that when parks are designed by committee, they tend to oftentimes end up somewhat mediocre. So it was because it was fast and the clients were just like, they saw our portfolio and they were kind of like, do something cool. So relatively quickly, I feel like start to finish, this was like a nine month project. And so, yeah, uh, we worked with an incredible horticulturalist named Jonathan Freund, who designed the planting. And it's kind of like this really next level sort of a, a botanical like experience in that a lot of the stuff in this park, he grows from seed and there are plants in there that you really don't see outside of like botanical gardens as well. And yeah, we, we wanted it to be like a tableau, uh, a plateau. Uh, one of my problems, I think to your comment, Glenn, that the park kind of uh, instigates exploration and kind of wonder a little bit. That was intentional in that so many public parks are like terribly prescriptive and they tell you what to do. Like here's the basketball court, Here's the playground with tons of plastic play equipment. Here's the little amphitheater. And it's kind of like rude, I feel like. And it's... Uh, it's very compartmentalized. Yeah. And it's insincere and not respectful of people's intellect, I feel like. And so this park was kind of designed with more of a European tradition in mind in that we make a beautiful place. We create like objects and ways for people to inhabit it. And then we kind of like let it be. So it's a, it was like a really interesting project like the first time I went there they threw like this opening party a man like fell asleep in a chair next to me and I was like oh people are gonna sleep in this park how cool and weird is that so yeah it was a successful project almost because of its constraints in a way I'm glad you enjoy it thank you yeah I do and I like that there wasn't like a huge attempt to overly uh camouflage certain things like there's there's one part of the garden where um there are some electrical boxes just up on some some metal poles and it kind of sprouts up like plants a little bit in my in my mind because the because the garden is there the giant pillars that hold up the train kind of become this tree canopy almost and so it kind of changes your perspective on on that space because when it was dirt it was like total urban decay area like crime happens here, nothing good happens here, you know, just dust and dirt and nothing. Um, but now that the, all this greenery is there and all this, you know, happiness and color is there, um, it, you know, you see the train differently. It's like this overhead canopy of, of cement tree. Um, so where would you say we're missing the mark when it comes to developing and planning our cities? urban and suburban areas? I think David touched on it, but design by committee is never a good thing and it just dilutes the vision usually. Mm -hmm. So in a case like this, it's kind of perfect where we had a developer who's private and we didn't have to answer to too many governmental bodies to make a park happen. I also think the concept that like parks have to be expensive or are expensive is kind of insane considering we did this for you know not a lot of money mm -hmm. that's where i think it's wrong is like people need think that we need to have like say we need to have millions of dollars to do a civic plaza but really you don't mm -hmm. um as you know going back to our employees little garden in her bungalow um you know as long as it's like treated well and people are attached to it or have input into it i think it can work out for a lot less money than people think 
you, you don't need to pour concrete in the end, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah. I think we're like increasingly, I'm increasingly uh, disenchanted with like grand visions for the future in a way, because those grand visions for the future take too long. They get muddled in bureaucracy. They, they're too expensive. Anyways, I feel like what would be more interesting to me if there was just like surgically throughout the city that all the vacant lots that Los Angeles like owned, like people were allowed to start building their own gardens on or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so it was like a million little piecemeal things that were like really cheap and could happen like quickly. I think that would create a much more like a revolutionary sea change in a city mm -hmm. than like redoing Pershing Square or something um in the way that they were kind of like talking about doing it and guess what it was a beautiful bold arch landscape architectural vision that i don't think is going to ever happen because it was too expensive and complicated yeah i think complexity is is one of the real issues like it seems like a an exercise and let's design this because we can kind of thing instead of you know what what are people actually going to use so do you have any suggestions for redevelopment areas or maybe some policy recommendations that would be a step in the right direction aside from planting on vacant lots and and simplification like are there any areas that you've run into or butted up against you know we don't work uh, at like a ton at the public scale but a thing that i found is that oftentimes uh like let's say we do, we don't do a lot of ground up homes and ambitious renovations and mm -hmm. For example, there's this thing called LID, which is low impact development. And what it requires is that you deal with your stormwater on site. And ultimately where that comes from is you end up with water tanks and or rain gardens on your projects. We tend to scorn those sorts of things because though it comes from a good place and our city is trying to make our new construction more sustainable and light on our stormwater system, which is already kind of overloaded in practice, it sounds good at a policy level, but in practice on the scale of a residential project, it's really like asinine and doesn't make sense in that they require that you that have these rain tanks on the side of your yard, but then give you no stipulation or there's no follow through on how you connect those rain tanks to an irrigation system. Mm. So all over town, there's these rain tanks on the sides of new buildings that like essentially aren't hooked, to, hooked up to irrigation systems in any meaningful way. Also in Los Angeles, uh, in LA, it's kind of different in the Bay Area, but here, like our rain basically comes between eight, within like eight to 12 weeks of the entire calendar year. And then it's dry the rest of the year. So in these rain gardens, they have concrete bottoms, so you can't plant trees in them. There's not a lot of plants that are comfortable being inundated with water for a month out of the year and then completely bone dry the rest of the year. So you actually have to put irrigation into these rain gardens so it's one of these things where like at a policy level, they're trying to do these sweeping things that have great change. But when you get to the actual site of the individual home or, or subdivision, it's a mess. And it's like really like misguided. I would be more inclined like for the city of Los Angeles to make gray water like a really like easy thing or a thing that you don't have to permit and things like that. Because with rainwater, you can feed an edible garden for, for like all year long with what's coming out of your laundry. And certain like mechanisms like that, I think would be much more suited to like our climate and our city. That doesn't really answer your question as to like, how or what should we do at like a larger city level? But if we, I think more smartly advanced our building codes, that that would be one way of doing it. But Jenny, story, Alan, 
Um, I don't know. I'm just like waiting for the Green New Deal to pass. And then, uh, you know, it'd be cool if people could get like tax breaks for having habitat in their yard or something, you know, um, connecting yards, tear down the fences, put put gates in them. I feel like, you know, if we're if we're dreaming here. And I think per the per you bringing up the Green New Deal, my fantasy is that like the city of LA or really any municipality would, instead of seeing landscape improvements or sustainability as something that is just gonna cost a lot of money. I mean, per what David and Alan were saying, it doesn't need to cost a lot of money. And in fact, the answer might just be start taking care of the land that we have, right? Like depave what we have and just send some people out to start taking care of it. It's not it's not that complicated. You don't need a big fancy design. You don't you might not even need to change the laws. All you might need to do is just send people out to take care of the land. That's my green new deal fantasy. <laughs> yeah, I think incentivization goes a long way um, to what you guys are talking about like for the healthcare industry for example if you're on an exercise regimen and your numbers are good at your uh, yearly checkups, you, you should get a, a discount on your insurance for, you know, taking care of yourself. Uh, so, you know, some people need those, um, those financial incentives or, or those little carrots to, to be put in front of them. But the result of all of that is a healthier population over time. So I think, you know, we can do the same thing with landscape design and, and, you know, David, Speaking to the rainwater reservoirs uh, versus gray water, I think that's that's a great idea as well. As you know, instead of rainwater reservoirs, maybe there's a a filter that needs to be attached to the house so that the gray water gets cleaned up a little bit because you don't want to like be putting all this toxic water on your on your lawn. But I think those are great ideas. So where are your heads at as far as the future goes? I know, I know you're not into like a future grand vision, but where would you like to see us go? Keep it simple. Yeah, Danny's garden is what we were describing. Like a, a low-tech, ecologically robust garden that's as much for the people that use it as it is for the birds and the bees um, that move through. Everyone should start composting. Basically, everybody should become a hippie. Um, story alan what i mean i feel like the future is more low-tech of garden making and natives pair with that really well yeah i was gonna say we were just interviewing someone uh to join our team and he mentioned something like lemon neutral he wants the whole city to be lemon neutral which is that everyone plants a lemon tree and no one buys lemons anymore and it's such a simple idea um but yeah we kind of thought that's genius in a way um why are people buying lemons when lemon trees are covered with like 200 lemons at a time, um, you know, throughout the year? So anyways, yeah, I think I think it's just keeping it simple. Don't don't overthink it. And uh, we, we had a boss, David and I, who just says who always said, just put it in the ground, you know, just put it in the ground and see what happens. And it's like that basic, I think. Yeah, I also I have a friend who um, well, I won't call out where she works, but she does a lot of like analysis for some large tech companies about like why it's important to plant trees and I think she's just kind of like pulling her hair out with you know I guess you know science is important but also like we know that the trees need to be planted and that they're gonna do good so let's just like just do it let's stop talking about it yeah you know I I love 
the idea of um, bio urns. I, I discovered these things like five years ago, but basically when you die, you get cremated and your ashes go into this little urn and there's a little, um, there's a tree seed on top of it. And then that gets buried and, you know, your ashes feed this tree over, you know, 50 years or whatever. And I, and I love the idea of having like a sacred forest instead of a cemetery that needs to be mowed and, and watered. You just have this forest full of like, I like that people who've passed and, and it would be such a, an amazing place. Why even get cremated, Glenn? Let worms eat your decom decomposing flesh. Uh, that's even better. <laughs> you could do that too. <laughs> Absolutely. So <laughs> before we wrap this up, um, is there anything else any of you want to mention, plug, or talk about that we haven't covered? We're, we're starting, we're in the early phases of building a uh, garden on a vacant lot with a friend of the office who's a conceptual artist in like kind of mid-city. Uh, and it's it, it's forthcoming and the idea is that in the near future it could be like a covid safe place for people to meditate eat lunch take a phone uh, i don't know if i want people to come in there and talk on their cell phone um uh but anyways it's a kind of like a, a side project it's another kind of beautiful money pit that we're uh, we're working on slowly and as it releases uh i'll i would reach out to you glenn and let you know but um yeah the, the idea is that uh, we would like to ultimately invite other artists into the space uh, to do interpretations, uh, whether that be performance or however it might manifest. And then for people who couldn't be there physically, whether from because of COVID precaution or if they're far away, we want to start taking videos of these art interventions in the space. Um, so that's a thing that we're looking forward to. And we've got a lot of ex exciting projects that we're excited to share with the world in the next year or so. Oh, Alan and Story are working on Sea Ranch, which is a, a really deeply heavy thing. Alan and Story, do you want to talk about that briefly? Yeah, I mean, we are honored, totally honored to, to be working up there. Um, it's coming along slowly but surely. We're learning how to like work within that context that's so specific and um what's your role there well we are designing the surroundings of the lodge and also we have some residential projects up there as well so there they've um some new people bought the lodge and they have renovated the main building and are going to be reopening sometime this year, I would say. Okay. And uh, yeah, it's really exciting to be a part of that and a challenge. Yeah. Is it, is it the whole grounds around the lodge, like to the sea, or is it just a, a certain section? It's phased. So um, we are currently concentrating uh, right around the lodge, but okay. definitely like the the master plan is part of the the overall vision. Yeah, but I mean, there's not much you want to do, honestly, because no. <laughs> it's pretty perfect the way it is. So it's really about that light touch and how to just um, make it work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fascinating thing to design because it's as little design as possible. Yeah, exactly. Just to to bring people in on this sea ranch is like this unincorporated community in Northern California in Sonoma County, 
Um, and it was first envisioned by an architect and planner. Ah, what's his name? Halprin, Charles Moore. There's a lot of them. Al, Al Boki. Oh. I think. And way back when it was first conceived. Okay. And then he fired, he hired five more architects and a landscape architect to help him um, build the community. And the, the, the ultimate goal was to preserve the area's natural beauty with the overall vision being to build structures that would work with the natural landscape, the winds from the sea, retain the natural flows of like the watershed. Don't, don't mess with those and use natural materials that would age with the landscape. And it's, it's done exactly what it, what it was set out to do. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. So yeah, I'm really excited to see what, what develops out of that. We're going to so. do some real cheesy flower beds, just little annu annuals. Uh, <laughs> yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> so let's see geranium. Perfect. Yeah. yeah Ellen's going to plant a lot of agapanthus. Um, That's what I was just going to say. Agapanthus <laughs> everywhere. Yes. Agapanthus everywhere. Oh, uh, on the education aspect, um, David, I, I wanted to talk briefly about your store. Oh, sure. And because because it, it has some books and and knowledgeable people there who can help uh, people out if they're interested. Unrelated to Terramoto, but related to Terramoto, I guess. I'm part owner of a store called Plant Material in Glassell Park, and it's a nursery that kind of responds to a lot of what we've been talking about. In that we live in a time where modes of garden making at the residential level are changing. But I feel like nurseries don't really reflect that in that when you go to most plant nurseries, you can still see plants being sold that are wildly inappropriate or invasive or what have you. And so it's a nursery with a pretty strong botanical point of view in that about, I don't know, 50, 60% of our offering is uh, Southern California native species, perfectly adapted to Los Angeles. The other uh, half of the nursery is kind of a mix of fruit trees and edibles, as well as uh, regionally appropriate low water, mostly like perennial plants. And then it's kind of, it's got like a weird dippy dippy uh, garden shop with uh, a lot of interesting books that are, a lot of them are used that are kind of like good examples of books that you could read that would help you maybe start to become a, a gardener with like a ecological vision. It's called uh, Plant Material. And if you just Google it, uh, Plant Material Los Angeles, it comes right up and it's a, a cute, uh, lovely little shop. Um, so go and spend all your money there. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, thank you for the plug. I wouldn't have done it. I would have totally missed it. I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate the nudge. Of course. Of course. All right. Well, you know, David, Jenny, Alan, Story, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really, really appreciate it. I'm a bit of a fanboy, So this was a huge treat for me. Tell us about your, so this is, you're launching this. Yeah, this is. Yeah, well, it's brand new. So I have another okay. episode that I've done um, prior to this, um, but I'm cool. continuing to uh, have these conversations with people who are at the forefront of like architecture, landscape design, uh, health and wellness. Um, and how it's all kind of interconnected with each other. It's the kind of the area that I'm super interested in through the lens of design. So it's still developing, but I'm, I'm really excited for it. So congratulations. Uh, I can't wait to see what you come up with. It'll be awesome. Thank you very much. So there's like tons of questions on topics that 
we just didn't have time to get to today. And I want to talk, I'd love to talk to you guys more about specific projects that you're working on. Uh, I don't know if we can get you all back again, but I would love to have you back again and maybe talk about some San Francisco projects and some LA projects that uh, were interesting that you guys have kind of learned from and sure. continue to develop. Let us know which ones you'd like to talk about, because what would make the most sense is if you spoke to the project designer, basically. Mm -hmm. We have like, we're, there's four of us here, but there's like 16, 17 of us total. So I think you would have like a, it would be a bunch of awesome conversations. Perfect. All right. Well, until then, I wish you all the very best. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay whole. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation to find out more about this incredible group of people and what shapes their unique perspectives on the natural world. And I'm excited to have more of the Terramoto team back on the podcast for more interesting chats in the future. You can find out more about Terramoto, read their interesting essays, and see more of their work at their website, terramoto.la. That's T-E-R-R-E. M-O-T-O dot L-A. You can also keep up with them on Instagram at their handle at Terramoto underscore landscape. The music you hear at the beginning and end is provided by Kato and Creative Soundscapes. You can find out more at creativesoundscapes.com. Many thanks to the Terramoto team and to you for listening and subscribing. And until next time, keep striving for balance. Balance.